Miss the show, no problems on point and on this podcast. The cost of war, what's it going to actually cost us? Other than uh, going into battle in Ukraine, rooting out the oligarchs is really the only way to hit Vladimir Putin where it hurts. But a lot of those oligarchs have huge investments in this country, and a lot of politicians in this country have done well thanks to these big Russian spenders. The federal government says there is a price to pay for going after them, but there's a price to pay letting them continue doing business here. And the Trudeau government so far isn't even targeting the worst offenders. Sam Cooper will join me to talk about why no one in government seems to want to take actions going after the biggest threats against this country. Human loss in Ukraine is starting to add up as Vladimir Putin launches more firepower into civilian areas. Miraculously, Ukrainians have stopped Russia from seizing the capital, but they need weapons. They're running out of ammunition. And the weapons we're sending may not be all that helpful because, let's face it, we don't have a lot of stuff to give And the stuff we're giving is old. We'll talk about the strategy of what we need to be doing to actually help. And we talk with someone who spent 41 hours trying to escape Ukraine. He's an Edmonton man who's lived for years in Lviv. He's now living in Poland trying to figure out next steps as millions try to escape this war-torn region. Let's get talking. This is On Point with Alex Pearson. At the end of the day, if we are truly determined to stand with Ukraine, if the stakes in this fight are as high as I believe them to be, we have to be honest with ourselves, I have to be honest with Canadians, that there could be some collateral damage in Canada. It's a price we must pay. Question is, is the Trudeau government actually hitting Putin's oligarchs as hard as they can? Alex Pearson with you on this Wednesday, March 2nd. Great to have you along for what continues to be an incredibly busy time. And here we are, day seven, where Russia's ratcheting up its bombing on civilian targets after failing to seize the capital, which uh, amazingly is still being held by the fierce resistance of Ukrainians. They are just unbelievable with what they've managed to do. And of course, that resolve uh, is only going to be further emboldened by news today that uh, thousands of Ukrainians have now been killed. So Ukrainian people, they are very much fighting for their life. And if we're not going to help them on the battlefield, and President Biden made pretty clear in his State of the Union that we won't, then we have an obligation to actually use the weapons we now have. And those weapons are crushing sanctions to bury and decapitate Putin-friendly oligarchs. And so far, the Trudeau government's announced a list of 58 Russian billionaires, but they're not the biggest targets or even the oligarchs who are most connected to Vladimir Putin. And still absent from the list and probably the best known would be Russian billionaire Roman Abramovich. And among many things, he owns the Chelsea Football Club, which he has now put up for sale as of today. But uh, in this country of Canada, he owns steelmaking giant Evraz in Alberta and Saskatchewan. And his company supplied most of the steel for the way overpriced Trans Mountain Pipeline. And it's believed Bramovich holds Putin's personal wealth and is the 11th richest billionaire. So if the goal is to hurt Putin, why is this guy not on the list? I mean, there's got to be a reason. I mean, maybe it's because a lot of the oligarch-owned businesses... And the oligarchs have pretty cozy relationships with politicians in the country, uh, both past and present. 
And those politicians can do things like help them get subsidies or access to power. And then in return, maybe the politicians get a big donation. Back in 2019, Freeland actually toured Abramovich's Regina Mill. And back then, she called it a privilege to see their work up close, praising the company for creating good middle-class jobs for the people. Now, I'm not suggesting Freeland got any donations from him or anyone else. I mean, maybe she did. I don't know. But I do know that the company got a $40 million subsidy in 2019 to upgrade its mills by Freeland's government after her visit. And I'm sorry, but Russian billionaires should not be getting a dime of Canadian, you know, tax-paid handouts. And Sam Cooper, who will join me later in the show, he laid all the all of these connections out in his book, Willful Blindness, How a Network of Narcos, Tycoons, and CCP Agents Infiltrated the West. And he describes the very incestuous relationship between our politicians and foreign billionaires who end up parking their billions in real estate across this country and over time have uh, bought a lot of influence with our power brokers. So it makes one wonder, you know, just how ambitious our politicians are to truly cutting off these relationships. Because up until now, there has been absolutely zero appetite, which is why Canada is known around the world as an international haven for foreign money laundering. And Freeland says there's going to be a cost to going after these oligarchs. Well, there doesn't have to be. You know, the Trudeau government went after truck donations and had people's bank accounts closed. They got all those donations. So if the idea is to punish and get, you know, through to these oligarchs, why can't they just seize their businesses and turn the shares over, I don't know, to Canadian investors, whatever? That, that should be a thing, no? If we can do it to truckers, why can't we do it to the oligarchs? They got a lot more money. I mean, we say we are standing with Ukraine, yet those in charge are still very much doing business with the very people responsible for killing Ukrainians. Uh, President Biden still, to this day, has not banned Russian oil because the reality is he's worried that fuel supplies will run dry and average Americans will go broke every time they fill up their car. This is the problem the West has created for ourselves in doing business with tyrannic oil regimes. This is what happens when you buy blood and conflict oil. And until all NATO allies stop buying Russian oil, we are very much absolutely funding Putin's war. And if we truly want to avoid a full-born war, then those in charge either have to go all the way, hitting the oligarchs as hard as they can, all of them, because if they don't, then we are simply allowing this to go on. We are fueling the death and the carnage that we are seeing play out on our TVs every single day. And if they don't do it, then all we're getting is talk made to look like action, which in no way is helping Ukrainians. We were already late to the game in helping this country. For whatever reason, NATO leaders, our politicians, they all saw the troops amassing at the borders, but they didn't bother to do anything. Everyone just kind of went around and did their thing. We had elections, we went on Christmas break, whatever, but no one decided to get ahead of the game. And it's not because Ukrainians weren't asking. President Zelensky begged, please send us weapons. And you know what? We didn't do it. And so here they are now fighting for their lives very much 
on their own. And I think it's really important to continue pointing out we have an obligation to defend this country. When they got rid of their nukes in 1994, the third largest reserve in the world of nuclear weapons, the deal was you get rid of your weapons and appease Russia and bring down calm and international community, European Union, NATO, we will defend you should there be a conflict. Well, here we are in conflict and now kind of on the brink of possibly a World War III. So if we're going to stop this, we cannot do halfway measures. Terry Glavin, uh, Glavin spoke on this show saying you've got to cut the head of the snake and then choke off all of that money. You have to bury it, kill it, crush it. You can't do anything halfway. Now, maybe they're going to add more names to this list. But if they don't start going for the people closest to Putin, then we're really only kidding ourselves. Meanwhile, President Zelensky um, has survived a, an assassination attempt by Chechen uh, special forces who apparently got ratted out by Russian security agents who are secretly working against Russia. That's a, a new turn today. Um, Zelensky, don't forget, is, is enemy number one for Putin. He has made Putin look not just like a tyrant, but a fool. So no question about it, Putin wants him dead. His family is number two, so he is being hunted. And there will be other assassination attempts. What happens if he's murdered? Is that like a red line for NATO to act? I don't know. I don't know what the red line is anymore. Joe Biden said, you know, if one inch of NATO territory is touched, that would be the trigger. But what is the actual red line? Because Putin ratcheted up the attacks, pounding both at Kharkiv today and Kiev. And uh, he's not letting up 2,000 Ukrainians now killed, but that number is probably much, much higher. And Zelensky actually talked to Prime Minister Trudeau today, begging him, uh, along with the other leaders, for this no-fly zone. But NATO has been clear that is not going to happen. It will not happen. And what Ukrainians need, we can't give them. And so the question is, is what we're even sending enough? Are they even getting these weapons? Like, how are they getting them? Well, that's Christian Freeland warning that blacklisting Vladimir Putin's top Russian oligarchs with holdings here in Canada is going to be felt by us all. And so far, they've announced 58 oligarchs who will be sanctioned. We're talking about the alleged founder of a Russian mercenary group, the head of an online influence operation, uh, bankers, politicians, their families. But there are many more oligarchs who are much more powerful, who have not been targeted yet have a substantial investment here in Canada, in particular, our energy and steel sectors. One of the most notable on the list is probably the best known. This is Russian billionaire Roman Abramovich. He's the best known uh, owner, uh, or he was the owner of Chelsea FC. He actually sold the team uh, today. But he owns more than a quarter of the public shares in steelmaking giant Evraz. This is a company that has uh, locations in Alberta and Saskatchewan. And it's supplied most of the steel for the Trans Mountain Pipeline Project. And it's believed that Bramovich holds Putin's personal wealth, and many are asking, uh, why is he not on the list? Sam Cooper is, of course, our global national online investigative journalist, author also of Willful Blindness, How a Network of Narcos, Tycoons, and CCP Agents Infiltrated the West. Good to have you, Sam. Thanks for having me, Alex. I know because of your experience, you've been kind of going through and and checking the lists and seeing uh, with our other global team who is on the list and who should be on the list. So let let me start with this guy, because Roman uh, Abramovich, and I'm probably saying his name wrong, he's one of the more well-known guys because you see him at all the big European uh, soccer games. You know, he just sold the team today that he had just put in trust. But why wouldn't he be listed or sanctioned? 
Well, uh, you're you're right. He's very high profile. His name has come up uh, in in a number of uh, House of Commons committees in Senate. Very recently, we've had some politicians asking precisely that question. Uh, he, by experts, including uh, critics in Russia, he is called essentially, you know, the purse strings of, of Vladimir Putin, or rather, he is the one out in front of Vladimir Putin's purse, allegedly. And look, let's just break down the Russian oligarch system. Uh, the experts say that uh, these oligarchs, about 500 men, they're all men, they, mm-hmm. they hold their wealth at the pleasure of Vladimir Putin. Uh, strategically, they're investing around the world to enrich themselves but also uh, very much for Russian state objectives. And it's a system called strategic corruption. Allegedly, you know, how it works is they can influence uh, other countries, other democracies, politicians abroad by by getting involved in uh, the sectors and the the economies, the jobs of democracies, potentially even influencing, you know, business persons and politicians in other countries so that they won't slap Russia, in in example here, with sanctions, or or maybe they will be for Russian policy. So why wouldn't someone like uh, Mr. Abramovich or others, uh, look, billions have been invested in Canada, some very high-profile oligarchs involved in real estate and Toronto. And Mm -hmm. as you said, our industries, look, it could get very messy for uh, Canadian politicians, both if they take someone down, you could be looking at job losses in Canada. And I think the deeper concern for national security and some politicians is uh, it could get messy. Their connections to Canadian politicians and business persons could come to the surface. I think that's one of the reasons that that, that Canada might not target uh, individuals like Mr. Abramovich. Interesting, because then it's all just a kind of smoke and mirrors game, um, you know, because to your point, and I was just talking to Tom Korski over at uh, Black Locks Reporter, he was talking about how the fact is, you know, you look back to the track record, I mean, Christian Freeland has actually, you know, toured companies uh, owned by, by some of these oligarchs, and she knows what an oligarch is. She wrote about plutocrats. This is an area of understanding and expertise. But it, you know, when you look back government after government after government, they all have either um, gotten fundraising money or they've had, uh, you know, involvements in helping subsidize, uh, making subsidization arrangements with companies. So there's kind of all the most this incestuous relationship that really goes against the grain of what's best for Canada's national interests. It's very incestuous. And uh, you know that I've reported a lot on the yeah. sort of Chinese oligarch system. Look, the Russian oligarch system is very similar. We see I'm afraid to say organized crime, foreign intelligence agencies, military mm-hmm. operatives interacting with oligarchs. And what my sources say is uh, our intelligence agencies have been warning Canadian politicians for decades. You need to vet the, these incoming, you know, golden visa type operations from countries such as Russia, China, Iran very closely. And as usual, Alex, we've talked about it. Canada seems to ignore those warnings. It's coming back to bite now. And yet we see down in the States, you know, uh, of course, President Biden taking the lead, saying we're coming after your yachts, your real estate, uh, you know, all your assets, because uh, that, that is really the pressure point where we could stop a dictator like Vladimir Putin. It's the biggest weapon uh, the West has.
Yeah, I mean, it's uh, we're not going to solve this if we don't. I mean, the other person, I mean, the group that they did go after was a, a Dimitri Utkin, the Wagner Group. And this is a private militia op- operation that doesn't have locations here in Canada, but they have um, operators, I guess, here on Canadian soil. But apparently, um, it, it, this is one of Putin's closest allies. Um, and they, this is the group that was apparently sending mercenaries to Kiev to assassinate President Zelensky, which uh, was a failed attempt. Um, and, and so, you know, this has been going on all around us, and, and most Canadians just don't know about this. You're exactly right. And what you said there highlights the point here. Uh, so far in the sanctions, we see uh, the West or Canada going after, you know, the, the politicians, the intelligence and military operatives. That, of course, is good. But look, in the oligarch system, it's these business persons that get involved in other countries and move the money for Vladimir Putin that are part of really a shadow sort of intelligence or, uh, dare I say, it's sort of a underground sort of organized crime type operation where it's a very sort of a sophisticated, more sophisticated way to put leverage on countries abroad than going after someone with military operatives uh, inside Ukraine. It's a form, again, as I say, of strategic corruption. Yeah, and and you've been covering these kinds of things, and you lay it out all on your book about all the money laundering and all the 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 things that have been going on. You just wrote about a Chinese oligarch named Zhao Jinhao. I hope I've got that right. He's a Chinese Canadian billionaire who has bought up uh, 155 million dollars in real estate across the GTA. But but this government, and I don't know if, and I can't just say the Trudeau government because this has been going on for a long time. Um, until they get to the root of this cancer and the rot of all of this, um, not only is our country's national security and and the future of our security going to be, um, you know, uh, put into a very vulnerable state. Uh, But there's no way we can say we're standing with Ukraine when clearly, um, you know, we're not. That's exactly right. Uh, you, You hit it on the head. Look, this is a global system of offshore banking where oligarchs, uh, intelligence agencies of various countries that are our enemies, let's be clear, are very, you know, they are using our financial systems to undermine us, to try to put handcuffs, essentially secret handcuffs on our politicians. And uh, what is happening in Ukraine really brings the point out of, you know, why Canada needs to step up and join more closely with allies, uh, United States, Australia, the United Kingdom are in the lead here, Germany, even we're seeing really taking the lead in, 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 as you said at the start, it's going, we're going to see some pain in Canada. If we go after people in this system, you'll see some, you know, factories sold. Other investors will have to come in and buy them. But the immediate pain is, is justified by the fact we see that this is, we need to go in this direction. Let me just say it now, Alex. Mm -hmm. Uh, lessons can be taken in China right now by how we respond to this. We both know that Taiwan Mm -hmm. is the, there's a hunger for that country from Xi Jinping. He's watching what's happening uh, in, in Russia and Ukraine right now. No question about it, but we're already being hurt. I just, people don't make the connection. You know, you can't afford a house in the GTA or Toronto or anywhere because of all the money that has been sunk in by, by these billionaires, uh, you know, buying up all the real estate. So there is a, a cause factor factor here. But at the end of the day, you know, we just had a bunch of truckers who had their bank accounts taken, um, you know, fundraising things shut down and the government taking their bank. Clearly they can do it if they want. And so, you know, there doesn't have to be that much damage, Sam. Could they not set it up or, or pass legislation to say, you're an oligarch and you're a part of this whole thing we're taking your bank account and you just don't get anything back and therefore we get your company i do believe i've you you've heard about this transnational task force 
going after the Russian oligarchs, of course, being driven by the United States. They're naming their European allies that they already know are, are on board with this. And uh, from the indications so far, I don't see that Canada is equally on board. And uh, it's a kind of an issue that we've talked about a lot, Alex. Uh, can it be that captured politicians, uh, corruption, or just a hunger for real estate wealth pouring into Vancouver and Toronto is holding our government back from taking these hard yet principled and necessary steps. I'm afraid to say that I think that's a big part of it. And and Canada really needs to uh, walk the walk and talk the talk now. Yeah, and we are not. So therefore, we are not standing with Ukraine. Sam, very much appreciated. I know you're pretty busy working on a couple of different stories. So I'll look forward to seeing what you dig up. But thanks so much. Thanks, Alex. That is Sam Cooper. He has been laying out this kind of stuff. He's written a terrific book, if you haven't read it, Willful Blindness, How a Network of Narcos, Tycoons, and CCP Agents Infiltrated the West. He kind of lays it out, the connections between the billionaires, the, you know, the moneymakers, and, and the politicians across this country and how, you know, intertwined they are. It's pretty telling. The message of the General Assembly is loud and clear. End hostilities in Ukraine now. Silence the guns now. Open the door to dialogue and diplomacy now. The territorial integrity and sovereignty of Ukraine must be respected in line with the UN Charter. We don't have a moment to lose. The brutal effects of the conflict are plain to see. But as bad as the situation is for the people in Ukraine right now, it threatens to get much, much worse. The ticking clock is a time bomb. So the United Nations voting today to condemn Russia's invasion and asking Putin to withdraw, but like that's going to happen. And what Ukraine needs and what they're begging for is an no-fly zone, but uh, NATO won't provide that. And right now Kyiv is surrounded by Russian troops. Both uh, Kyiv and Kharkiv, which are the biggest uh, cities in Ukraine, have suffered heavy bombing uh, over the last uh, seven days with at least 2,000 civilians now killed. So no question Putin's escalating his aggression. And he's got endless amounts of force. While Ukrainians are saying, we need more because we're running out of ammunition. So Canada is sending lethal weapons. We've got uh, anti-tank weapons and ammunition on the way, night goggles and body armor. But, you know, it's about the least we can do. And it's certainly not enough for what the Ukrainians need. Christian Leprec joining me, a professor at the Royal Military College of Canada and a fellow over at the senior, uh, senior fellow over at the McDonald Laurier Institute. Good to have you, Christian. Good evening, Alex. You know, given the sheer power of Russia, I mean, sure, they might look disorganized. Sure, Putin may uh, have underestimated Ukraine. But I mean, given the amount of power and, you know, what Ukraine doesn't have, uh, you got to be pretty shocked at what they've managed to do and hold on to this country so long. Yeah, I mean, and and uh, look, the Russians now have about 90% of the equipment they had amassed uh, in the fight, but they haven't pulled out all the stops yet. So in terms of their heavy artillery and their heavy tanks, uh, as well as some of the carpet bombing that they, for instance, engaged in in Syria, uh, remember that in Chechnya, they leveled an entire city because that city resisted and it basically disappeared mm-hmm. from the face of the earth. Um, so uh, there is uh, a, a lot worse, I fear, um, still awaits us. And we can see the more frustrated the Russian advance becomes through the 
ferocious defense that the Ukrainians are putting up, and the more morale starts to collapse among Russian troops, the more likely Russian generals are going to resort to using cruder, um, more powerful weaponry, because they know that they're on a timeline. We can already see the protests in Russia itself. Every day, the Putin regime is losing legitimacy. If this drags on more than two weeks, um, Putin might find himself in trouble. That's not my assessment. Um, that's the head of the Russian International Affairs Council, Andrew um, um, Kortunyev, that uh, basically also echoed that sentiment. Yeah, I think the initial uh, idea was to spare the infrastructure and try to spare civilian deaths, but that doesn't seem to be the approach now. And so is it of your opinion that he will just bomb whatever he needs to bomb to take control? And can he actually claim victory if he obliterates the capital? So that's a good question, because initially Russian troops were fairly moderate in the use of force, because Putin wanted to keep up the narrative that this was a campaign of liberation. Uh, but of course, I think by now he's realized he's lost complete control of the narrative, both domestically and internationally, that nobody other than himself um, is really uh, believing uh, the, the, what, what the Russians had tried, to, uh, had tried to put forward here. And the Russians also, of course, realized that uh, if the Humpty Dumpty here that they're breaking, they're going to have to own that. There's not going to be any money from the international community to rebuild these places. Plus, these are places where part of the reason why Putin is engaged in this is because Russian population is in steep decline, in particular Slavic populations. So this is an easy way for him to try to shore up the demographics uh, of the Slavic part of the Russian population. And so who's going to want to stay behind if you bomb a city to smithereens and if you treat um, uh, the civilian population um, uh, terribly in the way the Russians do? So there is a a bit of a tricky situation for the Russians in terms of how hard they go after the resistance. Yeah, and so it's like, what's going to happen next? I mean, what is the red line? I mean, President Biden's made clear that NATO is not getting involved. Uh, you know, um, uh, United Kingdom's president, or Prime Minister rather, uh, Boris Johnson has said they're not getting involved uh, unless, of course, NATO territory is touched. Uh, Russians' foreign affairs uh, foreign minister Sergei Lavrov said, you know, if there is a third war, third world war, it will be a nuclear war. And so, do you see NATO getting involved? at all at this point? I mean, what is the red line for them? Would it be the assassination of Zelensky? I mean, it's it's hard to imagine that we're not going to do more than we are now. So there's two scenarios, I think, in which NATO is going to get involved. One is that NATO is, of course, providing fairly significant weapons supply lines now, largely running out of Poland, but also of some other neighboring countries. Um, and so uh, the Russians, as they get frustrated, may well just send a cruise missile into a supply depot in Poland. They might just send one okay. single missile simply to send a message. But that, of course, Poland would likely call an Article 5 under the NATO treaty. Mm -hmm. um, and I think Putin would assume that NATO would be divided whether to get involved. I actually think NATO would stand united if Putin did that. But that would be one way. The other is, of course, that I think what's going to emerge is uh, that the Ukrainian defenders, as tragic as it is, I think will eventually be defeated by the overwhelming firepower of the Russian army. And so what we're settling in for is a 1980s-style Afghanistan 
uh, insurgency uh, funded and fueled uh, by the United States and NATO member countries, and it's going to drag on for about eight to ten years. And uh, that's essentially going to be, instead of Afghanistan, where it was primarily American-sponsored, this is going to be a NATO-sponsored insurgency, um, and it's going to cause huge amounts of pain on both sides, and it's going to take years uh, for the Russians to capitulate. And so that's the other way NATO gets involved. Right. But either way, we're going to have to back um, them because, you know, we will be dragged in one way or another because we can't just uh, sit there. I mean, it's just going to cause this never ending tension in the region. I think that's the best case scenario is that we end up with two blocks, uh, kind of like the Cold War, East and West, uh, and everybody puts down their arms. But as you say, I think what is more likely is we are in for a world of hurt uh, for years to come in terms of conflict uh, with Russia and of some extremely tense uh, circumstances. And my concern is that in this country, we're not psychologically and we're not militarily and we're not politically prepared um, to be able to face down the Russians for years to come in Europe over Ukraine. And we need to wake up and realize that this is a very different world. um, And we better start making up for lost time. The Germans sure did when they increased their defense spending um, and uh, are buying all sorts of equipment to make up for decades of lost time. Where is Canada showing the recognition that the world has changed forever? And that is time for us to adjust accordingly. Well, I mean, look, the threats are only going to get worse. Uh, Russia and China are are certainly not, uh, you know, going to forget about each other. And so the longer this goes on and the longer we don't do anything, we're just putting ourselves at risk because, uh, you know, as Germany has flipped on its head and completely reversed decades of, um, you know, foreign and, and energy policy. I mean, to me, it's just this is not something that we can debate. It has to be done. Well, and it would also be nice if we had some clear words. I mean, the new foreign minister of Germany, Annalena Baerbock, uh, if you look at the transcript, uh, her translated speech at the United Nations, it was a very un-German, very undiplomatic, very clear speech about um, what is right and what is wrong in the world and what Germany's obligations are and what the Western and the democratic world's obligations are. And I wish we could actually hear clear, um, decisive words from our government and our minister to the same effect of actually uh, making it clear to both our own populations and to the world where Canada stands. Yeah, I agreed, and we're not getting that language at all. Well, nonetheless, we'll uh, continue to watch. Christian, I know you're so busy these days, but I very much appreciate always having your time. Alex, it's always a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, sir. That's Christian Loprecht joining us here today. And um, look, I mean, in the next couple of days, assuming that Zelensky can survive this thing, I mean, God help us if that man does get hit um, or targeted. I, you know, that's when the um, I think the real the, the wind comes out of the sails and morale will just drop for Ukrainians and around the world. And that's when I think this starts to get very, very real of the costs that we are, uh, you know, and the threat we are facing. Well, as the bombs fall, Ukrainians are fleeing for their lives in what is fast becoming one of the worst humanitarian crises of our time. And when this whole invasion started, I think most thought, okay, Putin will move slowly, take the two eastern states uh, of Ukraine that he declared independent. And so it came as a bit of, I think, a surprise to everyone, including Ukrainians themselves, when the bombs started immediately uh, falling onto well-populated areas and into cities. And that's why we're seeing some of the panic as millions try to escape. It's expected by this weekend alone that one million refugees will have left Ukraine. And by the end of this, it will be millions more. But the question becomes, you know, 
where do they go? Right now, the Baltic states have all opened their borders, but they can only take so many people before they themselves get overwhelmed. And that is already happening. Michael Leary is a Canadian who has been living in Lviv for the last six years. He joins us now in Poland. Thanks for joining us, Mike. Thank you. It has been a, a harrowing journey for you. As I understand, 41 hours you had to, I guess, walk, travel to get to the Polish border being able, uh, and trying to cross. Can you take us through what that was like? And, and, and given your hindsight now that you've had a chance to catch your breath? Um, yeah, um, it all kind of started um, the morning that the um, Russian attack started. Um, I woke up to, to sirens um, instead of my alarm that morning. And immediately, I, of course, kind of understood what was going on. Um, I notified uh, my stepson that we needed to go. And so the two of us packed our bags. Um, while my partner was abroad on a business trip, the two of us packed our bags. Um, we grabbed as much as we could or we thought that was needed, not really mm -hmm. knowing what was going to happen in the next uh, hours or days, um, and immediately made our way out of the city um, of Lviv to a smaller down in the countryside uh, where my in-laws live, where we stayed that night. Um, and then from there, the next day, we decided that we would do, we would try a border crossing um, and then kind of started our 41 hour journey. Um, wow. Yeah, um, it was, it was, um, it was challenging for sure. That's, that's one thing I would say. Um, at the start, we didn't know that it would be so long. I kind of figured it would be a couple hours um, because previously I knew that the lineup was 1.2 kilometers long for cars. Um, but when we got there, it was um, about eight kilometers long. And uh, as we started, the line moved quite slow um, and it never really sped up through the whole two days that we spent out there. Um, we spent two nights um, that were well below zero um, with little food. Um, I had luckily a couple of weeks before uh, at the grocery store, picked up some granola bars, a bag of peanuts, just in case, you know, worst case scenario. Um, and we had grabbed a bottle of water. Um, and so 41 hours below zero, uh, usually each hour moving about 100 meters to 200 meters uh, total. Um, and actually we had also little gas. Um, and so I drove for almost 24 hours with the gas light on. And so every wow. movement I would turn the car off, turn the car on, move and so on and so forth. So it was a definitely a, a, a mentally trying time for sure for myself, um, being in the car that long um, and not really knowing what was going to happen or what was going on around us um, in terms of the invasion, um, if anything was going to come towards us near the border. And it really wasn't until um, maybe a kilometer into Poland that I, I started to feel safe. It, it, you could start seeing the border crossing the lights because I, I crossed at night. And it really wasn't until then I, I felt safe because I, I felt here's a NATO border. I, I don't think anything's going to come this close to us. Um, so that was about 39 hours until I felt safe. Yeah. Boy, yeah. I mean, um, what a harrowing journey it, on emotional um, on so, so many levels, because not yes. only is there a fear factor, uh, but there's so many unknowns. And then, you know, then you turn around and you're watching what's happening to this country that has become a home to you. And it's uh, it's got to be incredibly emotional, if not angering. Um, and then you see the bravery of your statesmen, your neighbors, your communities. What's that been like seeing what's going on? Um, you know, the ruthlessness of Putin um, and what you've escaped. Um, it's it's infuriating. Uh, to be honest, uh, what's going on. Obviously, Lviv has been mostly untouched. 
Um, the first day there was some incidents within the region, but um, anything to the east of Lviv has been, uh, I mean, Kiev's getting destroyed, Kharkiv's um, destroyed, anything south around the Donetsk regions is destroyed. Um, anything outside of you know the Crimean border um, mm -hmm. is destroyed. Odessa is close to being invaded. And so for me, it just brings a lot of anger um, for, for what's going on uh, because it was really unprovoked. Um, you know, we've heard over and over, each country has its own right to decide. And that's kind of what happened is Ukraine decided what they wanted to do and, and Russia just can't, or I should say Vladimir Putin just can't accept that. Yeah. And so that, yeah. really, that really angers me and I'm seeing my friends who can't leave the country because of the, the male ban of who can and cannot leave. And they're being put in harm's way, having to defend their mothers, their fathers, foreigners who are still there, their brothers, sisters, and, and everyone. And they, they shouldn't have to do that. They should be working. They should be with their wife at dinner. They should be doing whatever they want to do instead of having to fight a, a pointless war. Yeah, there have been so many heartbreaking images of fathers having to hand their children away, even to strangers. And as I understand, and maybe you can give us some uh, light on this, um, just the situation once you get into these areas. I mean, there are people that don't have anywhere to stay. They don't have food. They don't have clothing. It's cold. As I understand, uh, the Polish people, uh, people in these Baltic states are being very giving, um, generous, bringing them in. But it's still unknown. So what is your situation? Are you getting help from the United Nations, from Canadian groups? What is that situation like? Um well, you know, once you cross the, the Polish border, um, you know, I think as Canadians, we all, you know, we've turned on the news and you see a refugee camp. But it really doesn't hit you what that is until you see one or when you're in one. And when, I, when we crossed the Polish border, it was, it was a refugee camp. The, 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 there was, it was dirt and mud. There was, thank God, there was tables set up with, with hot water and, and, and bottled water and food and all sorts of things. And, and, and the Polish side had a, a great setup. Um, of getting people who needed places to stay to to a center, um, getting people food. Um, myself, I'm not necessarily yeah. I'm I'm not taking any um, uh, assistance from the United Nations or 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 Poland uh, or any or any countries at this point. Um, I have family um, uh, in 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 Poland that we're staying with at the moment, and so um, we're incredibly lucky um, from from that standpoint. Yeah, I, but there are so many unknowns still. I mean, Putin may Correct. not stop um, at, at Ukraine. And if he touches one inch of uh, NATO land, as you well know, uh, and you're in it, uh, there will be a full-born war. And so what do you want to do? What is your family going to do? Are you going to try to stay? Do you try to come back to Canada? Do you bear it out? And is there a fear that you you and, and the families or those in Poland and these Baltic states, is there a fear that this is going to escalate? Um. Well, right now, day to day, we're, we're just keeping an eye on what's happening. Um, and that's kind of the, the most we're doing. Obviously, you know, I, I have a plan that if there's talk of NATO intervening before NATO gets touched, that would be a big red line for us. And, and we would be on the first plane to Canada. Um, I think if anything happened beyond our control in Poland or another NATO country, we would try and get on a plane, but maybe those would be booked by the time we could. Um, but ideally, long term, I think like we we all want to return to Ukraine. Yeah, um, it's it was it's been my home for the last six, seven years. Everyone I know who's left, all they do, all they want to do is go home. Um, I talked with my friends who've who've been able to leave and all we say is we just want to go home. Um, it, it's 
it's just it's so sad to see it being destroyed for for really nothing and all we want to be able to do is just go home and fix our apartments fix our streets um and do as much as we can to repair the damage that's been done and just and just be left in peace yeah, it's hard to know what home will look like or if you will or anybody else will be able to get home. We don't know how long this will last. Mike, what would you, I mean, we, we are all watching, obviously, and uh, everyone is as enraged and emotional, uh, you know, on this side of, of the ocean. But what would you say, what is it that you want Canadians to understand um, from your vantage that we can't understand seeing through the, uh, the news and the cameras? Um, Ukraine is completely innocent. That's what I want people to know is they've, mm-hmm. they've done nothing to anger Russia and they've been through so much and yet they keep fighting. Um, I, see pic- I see videos and pictures every day of people, just fathers, probably computer technicians who have no military training whatsoever or, or any career and they're out, there with, they're out there with anything to defend their family. They're out there standing on the streets in front of tanks um, yeah. saying, go away. And they'll do anything for, for their country and they're fighting for their lives. And I think that um, as Canadians, we, we should stand by them um, to what level that you know, obviously our government kind of has some control on that. But as citizens, um, we can change our profile pictures as much as we want, but it, it doesn't help the people of Ukraine. Yeah, I would ask anyone listening to this that if it, what you see on the TV, it's five to ten times worse in person. So call your... You call, call your representatives in, in, in the federal government. And if you believe in, in the use of weapons, ask them to send more to Ukraine. If you don't believe in that, tell them to send humanitarian aid. If you, if you want to do things within your community, find a way to send that to Ukraine. I know uh, Meast, the, the company Meast is one that is sending things from Canada. Yeah, a lot of Ukrainian churches and groups are doing that. And, yes. and, what, and yes. just before I let you go, Mike, I mean, President Lezensky, I mean, he's become a hero around the world. Uh, shown a strength I don't think many have ever seen uh, in their lifetimes. Your thoughts on him? Um, it's changed. My thoughts on him have definitely changed. Um, yeah. I think he's um, a hero. Um, he's only strengthened the Ukrainian people. He's strengthened us foreigners who live in Ukraine. Um, I think too often uh, leaders in this place, they, they leave. And what's left behind is the citizens who probably elected that person. But in this case, his iconic quote is, he doesn't need a ride, he needs, a, he needs ammunition. Yeah. And that's so rare in this day and age. And um, maybe he's a throwback, but it's what we need. It's what the world needs. It's what Ukraine needs. And um, I think he's fantastic. And I think I speak for, I would say, almost every Ukrainian who would probably voice the exact same thing. I think you're speaking for everyone living in a democracy. It's been uh, astonishing. Mike, look, I thank you so much for uh, joining us. I know you're absolutely exhausted. Your family's exhausted. You're stressed out. But uh, we're thinking of you. We've got your backs here. We'll do whatever we can. And we'll pray for easier times for you and your family. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. That is uh, Michael Leary, who is a Canadian in Lviv or living in Lviv now, living in Poland, and uh, like so many others, just living in a world of unknowns. Thank you for listening. Of course, you can join me Monday through Friday, starting 6.30 sharp.